0: On this epic episode of Starpod Log, we consider the contents of Starlog magazine from 1983 in issues 67 and 68.
1: It's Bond versus Bond as Matthew Kressel considers the backstory behind Sean Connery's Never Say Never Again and Paul Myers tells us what it was like to be on the set of Roger Moore's Octopussy.
0: Lou, Rich and Max discuss Superman 3
1: the professor Rick Del Santo and Canine Johnny, fill us in on the wrestling scene of 1983. And more on this episode of
0: Star Pod Law.
1: Greetings and felicitations.
0: Hip hip hoorah, tally ho. Hey my
1: little Georgia peach.
0: Hey puddin'. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome.
1: We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture.
0: On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago.
1: But we leave the Star Trek related content to our other podcast, Starpod Trek.
0: Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine.
1: If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode.
0: Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews.
1: Feel free to join our Facebook group, too.
0: We are on tour.
1: Once again, we will be presenting panels as professional guests at... DragonCon! Dragon. In Atlanta, Georgia. This Labor Day weekend. What else can we say about DragonCon that we already haven't said?
0: Um, not much, but it's just a really cool convention.
1: I personally am very much looking forward to so many of the fan panels there. Probably the thing that I love most about Dragon Con. I mean, there are too many things to, to rank them in order. Obviously the costuming, obviously the parties, round-the-clock things to do, gaming, around-the-clock. But, I mean, the, the, the fan panels there are always incredible. I always learn from others, and, and it's one of the few conventions that I walk away being more knowledgeable about important things like fandom.
0: The fan panels are always great, and I love the celebrity guests, too, the celebrity panels. And, and I love just walking around the con...
1: The celebrity panels, I tell you what, this year they're having Marty Croft. I've, I think that's just amazing. You want to talk about someone who helped us enjoy our childhood in the 70s? Definitely was Marty Croft.
0: Yeah, he's someone I, I'm excited about seeing. It's like, who, who would have thought he would, would be at a con? I mean, yeah, it's so cool, the one who did Electric Woman and Dyna Girl. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Gaming creator, Bill Fawcett. Uh, Fellow podcaster, Mike Gordon, he's involved in so many panels. I mean, you have comic book luminaries like Carl Potts, writers like Kevin J. Anderson, um, Timothy Zahn. We love talking to him. What about the big Babylon 5 guests, too? Bruce Boxliner, Claudia Christian?
0: Yes, and Tracy Scogans. Um, all great guests. And I also love that they're going to have Firefly guests and Eureka guests. Um, they're, they're having Ed Quinn for the first time this year. That's someone I've always wanted to see from Eureka.
1: Lee Majors and Lindsay Wagner return as a $6 million man, bionic woman.
0: Yeah, love to see them again. So, I mean, those, so, those, yeah, those, that, those were
1: shows that we loved as kids. We would have been best friends because we watched so many of the same shows together.
0: Oh, oh, I know. I mean, all of these great shows. Of course, Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray are back.
1: From B- Buck Rogers. And, you know, every time we go to Dragon Con... How, how many Dragon Cons is this going to be for you? Did you figure it out?
0: Um, probably, no, I haven't really. Let's see, 32 maybe. Yeah.
1: Every year that we go, we try to do something different. Because it's so huge that there's a point where you get into a habit, and it's it's impossible to do everything. So we try to do something different every year. The thing that we're looking forward to that we've never done before is this workshop with Aaron Gray. William, Wilma Deering herself.
0: She does a Tai Chi workshop every year, and we've never been able to do it before, so we're excited about doing it this time.
1: Absolutely. We'll be presenting a variety of panels at DragonCon this year. Three are going to be on the Trek track. We'll talk more about that in our next episode of StarPod Trek. I will be interviewing Matt Kint. He is the illustrator, writer. I mean, just this guy is just an all-around amazing person. If you're into independent comics, such as Berserker or Mind Management, I'll be in the comic book track interviewing him. That'll be one panel, and then I will be on a panel with Jer Alford and Chris Hammer. We'll be considering The Bronze Age, an era of comics that I absolutely love. So don't forget, check us out on the comic book track at DragonCon.
0: Monsterama the incredible classic sci-fi and horror convention in Atlanta, Georgia, returns on Halloween weekend.
1: We love Monsterama. Uh
0: Another con that's native to Atlanta, and I've been going to that one for for several years, and it's always a lot of fun.
1: There's going to be a focus on Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger.
0: Yeah, a lot of uh retro guests at this one. So this year they've got Carolyn Monroe coming back. Um, Always good to see her. Uh, Patrick Wayne and, and Trina Parks, she's a great guest. And Linda Miller, so lots of great guests at this one.
1: Trina Parks, James Bond connection there.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah. Look forward to seeing more fans at Monsterama. Starlog Magazine, issue number 67. Cover date, February, 1983. We were talking about 1983 and some of the things that we love doing. One of the things that we don't stop to think about that is a mainstay at fast food restaurants now are Chicken McNuggets. Now, McDonald's had introduced Chicken McNuggets as early as 1980 in select locations. But it wasn't until 1983 that every McDonald's had Chicken McNuggets. So before we go into the content of this magazine, let's paint a picture of what life was like in 1983. Were you a fan of chicken McNuggets?
0: I was. I loved them. Um the the thing I remember is going to going to McDonald's in my hometown and when you ordered the chicken McNuggets, they they didn't have them already cooked. You had to pull over and wait a few minutes for them. They were fresh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I loved them. I loved how they were like it seems like the chicken inside was... You know what I mean? Because it was like the the crust on the outside. The chicken inside seemed to be in little tiny bits.
1: Because I did not like McDonald's. I was one of those weird kids that liked Burger King way better than McDonald's. But I was frustrated because I wanted the McDonald's Happy Meals. Like, I remember getting the McDonald's Happy Meal with Star Trek The Motion Picture promotion on it in 1979. I was like, man, I just don't like this burger. You just want the Happy <laughs> Meal. <laughs> But Burger King, I thought they had a better burger. But when McDonald's had Chicken McNuggets, I was all over it. I loved it. And that little dipping sauce.
0: Yeah, I love the dipping sauces too.
1: <laughs> I totally remember getting Happy Meals in 1983 with my cousin Mark. And he loved the Dukes of Hazzard. And they had Happy Meals in the shape of the Dukes of Hazzard cars, like the Sheriff's car and uh, the obviously the General Lee and a variety of others. It was so unique. That's the first time I ever remember a Happy Meal not being made of cardboard, but being made of plastic instead. So, as much as I like Burger King better, and I-, I loved Bonanza. My grandfather would bring me to Bonanza, have the 99 cent child plate. Oh, that was so good. But McDonald's did have some good gimmicks. Fast food chain that started in 1983? Believe it or not, Panda Express.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I, I think, um, I never saw a Panda Express until sometime in the 2000s. But, but I loved them though. I mean, yeah, once I discovered it, it was like the first, um, Chinese fast food restaurant. Exactly. And I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. And Jimmy John's Sub Shop. They would now be a competitor at the Subway, but 1983 is when they started. Go figure, huh?
0: Yeah, that was another one I didn't see until the 2000s. And, and yeah, they had a uh, much fancier subs than Subway.
1: And here's something to think about. 1983 was the year. Burger King got into the breakfast game. They, oh. they spearheaded the Kris Sandwich.
0: I, I love the Kris Sandwich. Of course, actually, I think, no, I think the, the one at McDonald's was better than the Burger King one. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: the good thing was Burger King. For me, I was able to get those Star Wars collectible glasses. Man, I ever since the first Star Wars movie, my brother and I were collecting them. So, 1983 was the year that Burger King would roll out the Return of the Jedi glasses.
0: I, I did have one of those. I had I had the Han Solo one. Which we still I loved.
1: have. We, you know, we yeah. still have some. Oh, you're a huge Han Solo fan. Of <laughs> yeah. course, you had to get the Han Solo. But I'm saying we still have them around here, right? Like when I was a little kid, I could drink out of them. But now my nose is too big. I can't. I can't fit.
2: Can't put oh. my big nose in
1: that <laughs> glass. <laughs> Normal adults could do it, but I need those big pint glasses. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Three, two, one. Star Wars saga continues.
0: Sydney Gannis, Lucas Lucasfilms VP for advertising and publicity announced that following return of the jedi's release on may 25th 1983 the firm will begin plans for the next trilogy of films in the nine-part saga unlike this trilogy the second of three the first trilogy will be filmed in reverse order Gannis also told the press that following the first trilogy the third and final trilogy will be filmed in chronological order
1: What do you think about that news article?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, glad they didn't stick to that.
1: So what they're saying is, like, let's say if we took the movies now, what we know they are. So they're saying they would have released, after Return of the Jedi, this news article tells us that Revenge of the Sith would come out next. Yeah. And then Attack of the Clones. And then The Phantom Menace. And then the sequel trilogy, in proper order.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a weird way to do it. <laughs> that's
1: really Like, I really wonder why weird. they
0: were thinking of doing it that way.
1: Very odd. The plans are being made to release Jedi six years to the day that Star Wars opened. 20th Century Fox has already briefly released Empire Strikes Back with a trailer for Jedi featuring some special effects footage. The film will also be re-released in April to make sure everyone knows what has been happening with the major characters so they are ready for the next chapter. National Public Radio will be broadcasting their 13-part adaptation of Empire beginning on Valentine's Day and ending just before Jedi's release. Which totally makes sense because in 1983, the average person did not have a VCR. You had to watch movies either on TV or when they got re-released in a movie theater.
0: Right, I mean, so you know, wait till it comes on HBO or something, and then
1: so having Empire come back to the movies just before Jedi totally made sense.
0: And, and of course, they can make you know another round of money on it.
1: <laughs> no doubt. Work continues at ILM, Lucasfilm's Special effects house on a nonstop basis with effects scheduled to completed by early spring. The firm will not be taking on any additional effects work as they did this year with E.T., Poltergeist, and Star Trek II. In fact, Gannis said, the next ILM film will be most likely to be Star Trek 3 in early 1983. In a surprise announcement, Gannis said that the Indiana Jones story has been expanded from three to five parts, but only part two has been placed on schedule. Alright, so what do you think about that blurb that's connected to all this? ILM is overworked because they're just making a lot of movies. They're working around the clock. Again, it makes sense that they have to back off a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's neat when you go back and read this stuff and and see all the the things they planned that didn't really happen.
1: Indiana Jones five part series instead of three.
0: Yeah, that's.
1: I mean, crazy. wish they have
0: done five now, but I mean, but but no, but but back then they did decide to cut it down to three.
1: Yeah. Then, yeah, we can say later... now it's five parts, but four <laughs> yeah. years later, right? <laughs> yeah. But if they made them in, in sequence in the 80s, I think it would have been much better.
0: You mean the, You mean like the last... Would,
1: we wouldn't have the Crystal Skull.
0: Yeah, right. You mean, the, <laughs> yeah, these other movies they made would have been better because they would have done something else, yeah.
1: While all this is happening, Star Wars will debut on cable television in February and then play on CBS the final fall. Yeah.
3: Why was the First Lady so excited to see a bird?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Biggest bird she ever saw in her life. Never saw a bird anywhere in Metropolis.
5: All birds are outlawed in Metropolis apparently
4: back then. That's true.
3: Well, gentlemen, if the world's most powerful computer can control even Superman, no one on Earth is safe. Except for (laughs) us, of course. And who are we? We're three idiots.
4: Lou Malagrana,
3: <laughs> Max Overnighter, and Dr. Durant, also yeah. known as Rich
5: Hurley. And why the Superman start off? Hey, maybe because we're going to talk about Superman 3 today, okay. and the making that's of...
3: Everybody's favorite Superman. The Wasn't third that the one Superman. with Richard Pryor? That is yes, the one. That's uh, the one when, when Richard Pryor's career was, was uh, some people would say, on the skids, taking off. I, I have to say, I loved Richard Pryor back in the day, and I went and saw everything he was in, and that's the reason well, yeah. I went to see this movie when it came out was because Richard Pryor was in it. But which was the
4: draw wasn't it, or one of the draws? Too. Yeah.
3: Well, well, what happened, and what was interesting about this article is, is the Socklands—they kind of got in a fight. It's notorious with with Richard Donner, who did the first Superman, which is a classic. And then the second Superman was fine, but they had taken away creative control of that from Donner and Richard Lester came in and did it and turned it into more of a comedy. And they felt clearly from reading this article that the comedy was the route they wanted to go with Superman.
0: Yeah, and they wanted
5: they were trying to get away. They were kind of they were kind of stepping away. In the article, they talk about how they are stepping away from one and two, you know, mm-hmm. and this movie was. Now, keep in mind, now, we're, we're talking about an article that came out in February of 1983. And Superman 3 wasn't released until June of of 83. So they're kind of talking about how, they're promoting how this movie is going to be a standalone. It's going to be, it's not really a whole lot of reference to the first two. So it's We don't totally... need one and
4: two to see three. You can see Correct.
5: three. Correct. So, yeah, it's all, it's all on its own. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the, because uh, there is no Lex Luthor in this one. Um, some of the other characters have, you know, some major characters, I mean, even have some minor roles only, you know, even Lois Lane, uh, Lana Lang, you know, and all of that. They have, you know, smaller bit, you know, smaller parts to the storyline. And the rest of the movie is all, you know, this is all Superman, Richard Pryor, and Robert Vaughn basically i mean that's, that's 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 your three mains right there i mean you do have uh the other character you still have perry perry white you still have lois lane but she's like on vacation somewhere you know and or on a, on, yeah, right. on location somewhere outside of metropolis it she was in gotham
3: yeah it clearly sounded like a an apology slash puff piece for the film from socklin because he's He's like, well, you know, we, we did we did everything we needed to do with Lois Lane in the first two movies. We don't we don't need Lois Lane anymore. We're ah. we're, we're bringing some new air into it. I mean, come on, Lois Lane and Clark Kent or Superman are a classic, iconic. You're like Superman couple. without
4: his cape.
3: And he's like, we've had, we've done enough of them because yeah. clearly, she did not want to be in the film. She came back for a, you know a cameo. And then the other thing that throws me off is he talks about there were no villains that we could find from the comic book that we felt were suitable to translate into a, an excellent film. So we created our own villains because that makes it more fresh and more original. And their own villains are Richard Pryor, Robert Vaughn. And then the, the other one is the, the woman that plays Robert Vaughn's sister that turns into the cyborg computer at the end. Yeah, you I mean, You're, right. you're, you're going to have a computer movie and you're not going to use Brainiac. From the comic right. books, or you know, the, the Bizarro Mixoplex, they they clearly have a lot of that stuff in there, and they do talk about how I think the original script they they did think of trying to use Mister, I can never pronounce his name, Plex? yeah, Mister Mixoplex, Mixoplex, and uh, Mr. And, and and Brainiac, but then they decided no, we want to create our own because you can see a taste of that in there, like clearly. Richard Pryor would be the the type character the impish goofy guy and the computer is brainiac clearly and then he even got a little bit of bizarro in there where you've got one of the only good scenes in the film when Superman splits in two and fights himself
5: yeah and and that's all in the uh mind AI computer world thing but it's yeah it's it's uh. You know, it's a, it's a weird concept and, a, you know, and, you know, they're talking here again, uh, you know, about how this one was supposed to be, you know, separate, new, fresh, different. And, you know, they're talking, this, this article is in 83, now we're 2023 and we can look back and say, well, you know what, um, unless you really were into the comedy, it kind of started to go a little too campy and was not very well received, even in 1983.
4: I was getting so, that impression from Rich when he was describing the movie in the beginning that it wasn't one of his favorites. <laughs> <laughs>
3: it's not. And, and, you know, I I, I, I honestly liked Superman 2 when it came out. I was younger. I was a kid. But um, in retrospect, a lot of people don't like it because it has a lot of hammy comedy in it where the the first movie... I mean, the first movie's got comedy in it as well. And I've seen the Donner recut of Superman 2. And it's good. I enjoy that as well. But because I saw the Richard Lester version as a kid, I enjoy the Richard Lester version a lot.
4: It has- I didn't even know there was two versions. Did you know that, Max? I did not. Yeah, I- I-
3: You can even get them on DVD. You can get the Richard Donner cut on DVD. It, uh, most of the stuff you saw in Superman 2 was directed by Richard Donner. And there's okay. a few scenes that, um, that Richard Lester came in and, and did some stuff around. Because they had planned, that's why at the beginning of Superman one, you've got Zod, Non, and uh, you know the, the woman there, uh ready to get sent off to the Phantom Zone. Because they had planned on bringing them back as a villain. So, I mean, you don't cast Terrence Stamp as as a character and not use him again at some point.
5: Well, it's kind of it was kind of interesting because, like, as you know, I was telling you guys before we started on this, you know, as I rent I rented, not so not rented, I borrowed uh the superman collection had one two three and i think there was a four uh, i didn't um was it wasn't it there a, a superman there four is well?
3: the the quest for peace and it was canon pictures peace. that did that that uh and a lot of people came back for that that is like star-studded for the time like gene hackman even came back uh, i don't think
4: i ever saw that it's not good. Well, canon pictures? Is that yeah, it? You, yeah. Are
5: you, guys, or... you know, canon. Yeah. Oh, well, this this movie had a pretty decent cast. I mean, of course, Christopher Reeve, um, Richard Pryor, Robert Vaughn, Jackie Cooper, Margot Kidder, Jeff. Annette O'Toole. Oh, my God. Yeah, Jackie Cooper as uh, he's oh, very white. Very white. Um, yeah. yeah, Margot Kidder, Annette O'Toole as Lana. Uh, Mark McClure, Jimmy Olsen, Annie Ross, Pamela Stevenson, and well, Gavin or or whatever as Brad, uh, but that's you know, I mean, because it opens up. I mean, the movie opens up with um, where he's he's back in Smallville, you know, for a class reunion or something, and meets back up with Lana. And Gavin is the was the high school rival for Lana's attention, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, there's a lot of people in here and, and, uh, but the, the, the ones that the only thing that was really important was, you know, Superman, Gus Gorman, you know, the Richard Pryor, Robert Vaughn, and, um, and of course, um, uh, Annie Ross who played, played Vera, the, the cyborg, you know, Robert Vaughn's characters sister.
4: I was gonna say it just it was interesting. I looked in the article. They had the one piece. I don't know why this stood out at me, where they said Lana Lang has kids, but they never identified if she was widowed or whatever. Right. It was just and that didn't that didn't go over well with right with, with DC Comics, yeah, and especially even back. I mean, back that the times were different back then, right? It was what eighty three. So I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. That stood out to me when I read it. I, I don't know why.
3: totally <laughs> did not remember that part from the movie at all. But I mean, again, it's like there's a lot of the movie I don't remember because I think I saw it <laughs> when it came out, and that was it. I never went back. To... Like slippery. I remember the I, I remember the computer part kind of scaring me, where Robert Vaughn's sister gets sucked into the computer, and the computer starts to you know integrate with her body, turn right. which again is like a Brainiac thing, and sure. turning her into like a cyborg type creature. That was kind of cool. I always dug Robert Vaughn. Like, he is one of my one of my more favorite actors. He was awesome in Man from U.N.C.L.E. And he was always one of my favorites in The Magnificent Seven, like his character in The Magnificent oh, Seven. Yeah, I really yeah. think it's cool. Great movie. He's just a really cool actor. And in later years, he never really got to do too much. So, you know, other than stuff like this, like Superman 3. Uh, he was on a couple of Columbo's where he was a killer that was pretty good as well. Yeah, yeah
5: but i was just going to i was I just going to but... throw throw that up that he was he was <laughs> there in colombo yep colombo <sighs>
3: yeah and that that's sort of sad the way that these movies kind of went they got progressively you know worse and, and i mean and then it was years until they would make another one I, what, what year did superman quest for peace come out max in 1987
5: Eighty-seven. Yeah, okay.
3: the only reason I saw it was because we, I worked in a video store, and we used to play <laughs> it. Uh, we used to just throw it on because we throw videos on there to get people to rent them.
5: What about oh, Supergirl that came out? Did that did that do well?
3: No. and a matter right. from, they talk about that in this article. They he mentions oh, right. that our next our next uh, thing is going to that gonna was the next Supergirl one that was going to go. Supergirl. Yeah. And they said oh, we're 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 doing a, we're hunting for the perfect woman to be Supergirl and. Supposedly, uh, you know, Schwartz was going to direct Supergirl. I think he did. I don't know. But, yeah, it was uh, was,
4: Superman. Who the heck was Supergirl? I don't know, but I saw Superman 4 because I remember, was it Nuclear Man or whatever? I remember that now. But I don't remember anything about it. I just remember that outfit he had on.
5: Supergirl came out in 1984. So who was in that? Helen Slater.
3: Oh, Helen Slater. That's right. Jeez, my brain's not working tonight.
5: Yep. and then uh, and Feed Dunaway was Fee in Dunaway that one. Yeah, yeah, so and, they had a pretty good, they had a pretty good. And and your pal Mark McClure, he was in there as Jimmy Olsen again.
3: But you know the Socklands and and Richard Lester had directed those. You ever seen those goofy Three Musketeer movies in the early seventies? They used to be on TV yeah. all the time on a Saturday. Yeah, and then they did the,
5: their- the Four Musketeers. Yes.
3: Yeah, like with, with uh, you know, Oliver Reed and Michael York. Yeah.
5: Wow. Christopher Lee, it o- Oliver it was Oliver Platt, wasn't it?
3: Oliver oh, Platt is, it, is Oliver. you're talking modern day. Oliver Reed was the uh the old time the old, the old, time, school, the old drunk dude, yeah. The old drunk dude. <laughs> oh, that guy was if you Google him or YouTube clips, every interview show he was ever on, he was smashed out of his mind. Awesome. Real aggressive, like British drunk. <laughs>
4: awesome. Awesome. I wonder if it was bum wine? <laughs> oh my god! Well, that was that was. I think we've come to the determination that I, Superman three was
3: not that. I think great we've had all we we can say about Superman, Superman three. I mean, might have been
4: worse. What what could have been? You know, you've
3: you've got the the inklings of, of Bizarro and Brainiac and Mixelpix yeah. or whatever his name in there. I mean, and and poor Richard it, right? Pryor. He really wanted to be in a Superman movie. He really did. If you watch old interviews on Johnny Carson, there's a famous clip where he says, I would love to be in a Superman movie because he loved Superman. He even did bits in his stand-up comedy with the old wino meeting Superman. Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> character he used to do. And so it, it was, it was kind of, you know, sad that he was in that Superman movie because it was not the most successful Superman.
4: Oh. Well, so be it so be it so go out and watch superman 3 and make sure you follow it up by superman 4 and the old supergirl and find the ice people i think that's the other one they should be looking for
3: <laughs> well the three of us are on a quest for well the three of us are on a quest for peace and well <laughs> lou is kneeling before zod
6: kneel before zod
3: we'll say our goodbyes I'm Rich Hurley, also known as Dr. Durant. You can find me on YouTube at Dr. Durant Sanctum, where I talk about movies, comic books, old toys, what have you. Maximus. And I'm Max Overnighter,
5: and uh, you can find me on Facebook lurking around the Amigo-like Facebook group, along with the Batman group uh, groups and some of the modern, mid-century, retro, fun stuff. And otherwise, I'm watching uh, YouTube and watching Dr. Durant. And- there you go. <laughs> doing Really cool videos.
4: <laughs> and I'm Lou Malagrani. You can find me on uh, Like Facebook group. You can find me on my Like YouTube channel. Ranting about toys and things that probably don't matter too much. Comic books and so on. But on that, this has always been fun. Thank you to our StarPodlog hosts for another wonderful session and on that i'm going to say goodbye and peace
3: uh, i'm paul shelley from revere beach massachusetts and superman <laughs> 3 is You're one of my that. favorite films why are you ruining my memories <laughs> of superman 3 you
0: jerks i you thought, paul thought he got mauled show? by a lion
4: we thought he got mauled by a lion at the cotton candy stand at the show the other day <laughs> That is Dr. Durant's other personality.
3: Darkon should have been the villain in Superman 3. You're
6: a rock.
4: You could make Superman 5, Paul, and put him in there. Darkon would be great for that, I think.
3: (laughs) I'm Joe Crow, and that's Gary Mitchell. We're the co-directors
7: of the American Sci-Fi Classics track at DragonCon. Find us on the YouTubes for live video panels and nerdy fun if you can't make it. To Dragon Con.
6: and if you don't, it will feel our wrath. Oh, what what
1: Gary
7: tells me this is a promo for Starpod Log, not pro wrestling. Let me try again. Stay tuned
6: for more exciting programming from Starpod Log, or we will find you.
8: Hello, StarPod Log listeners. This is the Professor Rick Del Santo of the Pro Wrestles Own podcast, and as uh, shown weekly on WON Sports Sunday afternoons, three thirty p.m. Eastern Time. I am uh, joined by professional podcaster Johnny Canine. Johnny Canine?
9: Yes, uh, on? well, nineteen eighty-three pro wrestling. What was going on? I just want to say to any listeners. You might say, well, what's the tie-in? of uh, You know, this is Starlog Magazine and pro wrestling. Well, you could have bought, it was advertised in Starlog Magazine, this poster of superstar Billy Graham, professional wrestler, in outer space with a, a tiger. Don't know why, but that was available. So that was the, the crossover uh, for sci-fi and pro wrestling at that time. So, Rick, do you want to get us going? 1983, what was going on?
8: Before I get that far, before we go into the next segment, I heard that uh, that poster sold none, that it was a terrible seller. Well, I can can imagine
9: because you're advertising in the sci-fi magazine primarily. So it's a weird, and even if you are a pro wrestling fan, you came across it, you'd say, why do I want superstar Billy Graham in outer space?
8: Yeah. How many sci-fi fans knew who Billy Graham was? That's the other thing. Uh,
9: they probably thought he was a preacher, and they were really confused. <laughs> uh,
8: 1983 was uh, a very interesting year. It uh, was the beginning, I guess you could say, of the future of professional wrestling. Major events happening that would change the face forever. Or, John? You want to take that one? Uh, it was it, I guess. Or, to, or, or some people. Uh,
9: yeah, some people would say um, <laughs> it was the beginning of the end. But, uh, but this really—it started becoming these. These are like, I guess, the, the seeds were planted. Absolutely. Would you say, like in 1983, uh, where it's becoming more mainstream. So 1983, very, very uh, important things were going on in pro wrestling. If you want to go over some of the. The events right? yeah.
8: Well, Starrcade 83, they were really shaping up Ric Flair to become the man that he became, uh, winning a title. Uh, Hogan was definitely probably one of the most popular professional wrestlers. We're going to get into that in just a second. And of course, Vince McMahon uh, had officially been owner of the WWF for quite some time after uh, purchasing it from his father.
9: Yeah, so now Vince Jr. purchased it off his father, right, in 1983? Yes. So that's when it really, that's why things were changing, because Vince Jr. Was, was in control. So, okay, so that, that makes sense now. Uh, and the other big event was AWA Super Sunday, 1982. Another, with Hulk Hogan, like you were saying, how he was getting big. He got, what, in 1982, so your prior Rocky Three. Right. Is when so that's that movie really really catapulted him into superstardom. And do you know who got him that role? Did you ever hear that that story? Uh,
8: I did hear this before, but I can't think of Terry something.
9: Terry Funk recommended him. So, right, correct. So another yeah. professional wrestler recommended him. Terry Funk, who worked with Sylvester Stallone, and said, "This guy is what. This is who you need as your opponent."
8: Uh, Funk and Stallone worked on the film Paradise Alley yes together prior to that so i think that initially he wanted funk for the film but he didn't think that he would fit the role especially with the way the times were changing
9: exactly yeah that's that's exactly why he recommended he said you need hogan and if you ever hear things that funk said and how just the guys he was so he knew what was going to happen next he was really ahead of what was going on in wrestling
8: oh yeah yeah so of course um you know uh they kind of, uh, if I remember correctly, or the way that this was put, that Vern wanted to put the title on Hogan, uh, with the, and he was possibly the most popular professional wrestler of uh, of the AWA or becoming in the world the AWA. Actually, you could put it on the equal level of the WWF at that time period. It was, uh, yeah. if not more popular, if you think about it.
9: Yeah, he was. I mean, for what I understand, he Hogan alone was just selling the tickets. I mean, he yeah. was a huge draw for that event, Super Sunday. I think that was the biggest event they ever had. And then they also had it on, I think it was like closed circuit television right next to the uh, arena too. So Mm -hmm. they sold out. So yeah, it was, that was a huge event. If you want to go back to other, to the listeners or some of these, you might not be too familiar with AWA or the NWA, the Crockett's NWA, but there was uh, so many well-known wrestlers. Like you mentioned Ric Flair. I mean, everybody knows who he is by now, Hulk Hogan. But you also had Roddy Piper. Before, he was really known nationally mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
9: with uh, the NWA with Mid-Atlantic. N- yep, yeah. And he had a very, very now famous uh, dog collar match at Starrcade 83 with another guy that became really, really huge, Greg Valentine.
8: Uh, also on the uh, AWA show, Jesse the Body Ventura was on it. Yep. Um uh Rick Gino Martell. England. Yeah, Gino England. Rick Martell, who uh would go on to become a huge star of the AW or excuse me, WWF as a tag team wrestler and he'd become the model. Jumping Jim Brunzel, who would end up becoming one and a half of the killer bees. Um and you know, Jerry the King Lawler was on the show. I don't know if I mentioned him. Um okay. But yeah, man, this was a phenomenal show. Of course, the match, the uh, it had been a very long build-up between uh Nick Bockwinkle and Hulk Hogan. And I guess that um, Vern Gagne, the uh, promoter, decided that they just could not do it, that they did not want a title on a guy that looked like Hogan. They wanted it on somebody that looked like a professional wrestler and that could wrestle like a professional wrestler. And they decided to go with a screwjob finish and uh, not give him the belt. And then uh, Hogan walked shortly after.
9: Yeah, yeah, that was Vern. He, he didn't know what he had, right? He didn't, he,
8: oh, yeah. Well, that's a thing with Vern Gagne. He did not know what he had at any given time because there was a lot of talent. I mean, but this was the biggest probably of them all. He would end up losing a lot of money by letting Hogan go to the WWF and uh, it, everything would trickle down after uh, Vince McMahon would cherry pick the top talent as the years went on uh, guys like Kurt Hennig. Um, give me other names here, Johnny. Uh, uh, I,
9: I'm just, I'm just looking through this, this list for the AWA super yeah. Sunday. You had um, Wendy Richter who, yeah. yep. who became huge. She was like the face of women's wrestling at one point, you know, in the WWF also another female velvet McIntyre.
8: Yeah, she would go on to uh, be part of WBF yep. for quite some time in the, yep. in the mid-1980s. Yes. Yeah. Judy
9: Martin, so yeah, like you said, Jesse Ventura, Ken Patera. So, I mean, it's really just a who's who of the stars is who we picked. And if you go to um, Crockett's NWA, I mean, like we said, Piper, Valentine, Ricky Steamboat was on the card. And the main event, Ric Flair versus Harley Race. And Harley Race turned into a totally different character. Once he got to uh
8: Well, they considered him the king of professional wrestling and they literally went with that gimmick calling literally. him King Harley Race. And uh of course, you know, other guys that were on there Kevin Solomon actually started in the WWF in the 1970s, if you mm-hmm. if you go back and watch some of the uh uh older championship wrestling episodes But, uh, you know, Bob Orton was on this show. Dick Slater, who had a short run in WWF in the mid-90s, probably 86, 87. Um, You know, like you said, Roddy Piper, Greg Valentine, Steamboat uh, was on the show. Jack and Jerry Briscoe. Jack, or excuse me, Jerry Briscoe would be an agent in the WWF for many, many years in the 1990s into the 2000s.
9: Yeah, at one point he started becoming a household name a whole different generation as a (laughs) comedy act, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it was a very, very interesting year. Uh, Other things I could tell you growing up in 1983, uh, my friends in my neighborhood, the one thing that we would talk about, I remember specifically this feud of Jimmy Snuka versus Magnificent Morocco in 1983. That was a huge, huge deal, you know, in the Northeast. Right. And one event was a... Jimmy Snuka versus Don Morocco in a steel cage at Madison Square Garden, and that became just uh, it was October seventeenth, nineteen eighty three, and that became such a big deal. Where other wrestlers, that you know, they were fans at the time, like Mick Foley, I think Bubba Ray Dudley and Tommy Dreamer, they were all there as fans to witness this, and that's one of the things that uh, motivated them to become professional wrestlers. Actually, that match. Right. Yeah, that whole feud, but that match at the time was a, a huge, huge deal with Snuka jumping off the top of the cage. Where now you see people doing stunts constantly, it was very, very rare at that time to see something like that.
8: Uh, not to mention, there was uh, November fifteenth, nineteen eighty three, Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson were the uh, made history as the first African American tag team to win the WWF World Tag Team Championships. Of yep. course, Rocky Johnson would. Uh, go on to become a father of the another legendary wwf superstar WWE superstar uh and actor the rock yes
9: yeah i remember that also was that against the samoans or no um or was it yes it was against the wild samoans
8: yes i have it right here in front of me it was in a no disqualification match actually
9: okay was it a wooden chair used over the head okay yeah yeah it's just funny i haven't seen that match in years but that it does stand out to me. So when you brought it up, I'm like, oh, now that now it's it's coming to me now. So that was a, a pivotal moment in 1983. So definitely that that definitely goes up there.
8: Uh, also, now I found this out while doing research for this. Now tell me, this is very interesting. Okay, so of course the national expansion would fully take force between 1984 and 1985. However, March 10th and 11th, the WWF had held its first ever live events outside of the Northeast. In uh, San Diego, in Los Angeles, California.
9: Okay. Was that the cow palace, do you know? Yes. Yep. Okay. So that's, that's a big deal because they never went there. So yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. was a that, AWA territory
8: probably at that I time. Believe, well, I believe that was. Yes.
9: Yeah. So yeah. that's yeah. where, yeah, that's where they started making moves. So.
8: And, of course, uh, WWF was part of the National Wrestling Alliance. As we've mentioned earlier, we brought the NWA up, and they decided to fully succeed and to go away from being the National Wrestling Alliance and focus on being its own brand.
9: Yeah. Yeah, which, again, this was uh, kind of unheard of at that time. Correct. So this is, so this is really, really... Like I said, the seeds are being planted. Once Vince Jr., right, he he got a hold of the company. Things started changing forever.
8: Yeah. Uh, We got a couple more things. Who here to discover? September 4th, WWF debuted All-American Wrestling on the USA Network. That show would run until about, I believe, 94, 95. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was another... There was another show where they showed a lot of exclusive matches and highlights and uh, such about the, all the happenings in the WWF. Of course, John, it's your favorite part. It's the beginning of the end That's as it. the iron sheet defeats Bob Backlund after his uh five-year reign. When Arnold Scotland threw in the towel in Madison square garden. Uh,
9: I remember, see, I was, I started really watching in 1982. So the, So at this time, I sort of knew what was going on. And I love the Iron Sheik, who actually just recently passed away. Yeah, so that, and I did not like Bob Backlund. So to see Sheik as the champion, to me personally, I thought it was amazing. Because especially it was very, it it was pretty shocking to that audience because they've wrestled before and Backlund beat the Iron Sheik all all the time. So they figured out this is just going to be another run-of-the-mill Iron Sheik Bob backland match but it wasn't and it was controversial because bob backland did not actually submit like you said arnold and threw in the towel so there's a little controversy where backland didn't actually technically you know lose according to some people
8: yeah yeah and uh, of course 1984 we'll save that for next time
9: Yes, but, uh, but uh, we'll just let you, you know that, uh, Sheik didn't have that belt very long. And, and he Absolutely. had that. And the next person who got that belt, boy, it's, that's when things change forever. It was great talking to you, Rick, about, you know, 1983 pro wrestling.
8: Yeah. And, uh, John, why don't we, uh, we got to give our, uh, contact information. I want you to throw out where people can find you. If you, Ever want
9: to talk pro wrestling, science fiction, action figures, anything like that? Uh, you could find me right now on Instagram, probably the best. Uh, at shocking things podcast, you could find me there. Uh,
8: if you want to find me, you could find me find me at PWZ Network on Instagram. Uh, my Facebook really is the same exact thing. Uh, everything that gets uploaded to Instagram goes automatically, or you can find me personally on Twitter at the Rick Del Santo and, uh, let's communicate you. We can talk pro wrestling, we can talk music, we can talk everything. Uh, let's just have some fun.
2: This is Eternal Zan, founder of the Cult of Marriott Carpet. If you'd like to join us, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash cult of Marriott Carpet, all one word. In the meantime, stay tuned for more exciting info on Starpod Log.
1: Future Conventions. Okay, let's talk about some of the sci-fi conventions that were being publicized in StarLog Magazine in 1983.
0: FreebieCon 2 Science Fiction Fantasy Convention in Beaumont, Texas, February 12, 1983.
1: What a strange name. FreebieCon? Okay. How would... You...
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, yeah, in a way, that's a, that's a way to get people to come because some people couldn't afford cons, even though they were pretty You think pretty that cheap. <laughs> was free to get in? That's what I thought it meant. <laughs> oh, did it mean, like, getting free things at the con? <laughs>
1: I don't know. How about this one? Halicon, which was a science fiction and fantasy convention in St. Saint Mani- Saint Mary's University, Halifax, Canada, March 4th through 6th.
0: Concord, folk Singing Convention. Fullerton, California, March 11 through 13, 1983.
1: Can you imagine an entire convention based on filk singing as the focus?
0: You have never heard of that, but you never heard of filk singing until I told you about it.
1: I didn't know that's what it was called. Like, I just thought it was people singing weird Al Yankovic type songs. Like, I. Yeah. (laughs) It just wasn't my thing. It wasn't on my radar. And then I realized after I started dating you, like, wow, this is like a whole subset of fandom filking
0: it is and some of the songs are serious too i mean it's not just comedy songs but yeah
1: go figure fantasy lair 83 it's a gaming computers and sci-fi convention tonkawa high school in oklahoma march 25th through 27th it's actually pre- pretty smart to have a convention at a high school
0: because high schoolers are the ones interested in coming.
1: And it's probably affordable to put it on. Probably put it in the gym or the cafeteria.
0: Yes, like, yeah.
1: They probably have a computer lab there for a convention like this. At this time, computers in in schools were just becoming a thing. So I think it's pretty smart, actually. If I was a kid and I had a convention in my high school, I would love it.
0: Acadiana Con, Science Fiction and Fantasy Con. With Starlog's Birthday Fantasy, Sheraton Acadiana, Lafayette, Louisiana, April 15
1: through 17. Here we go. We're going to see this multiple times. There's a footnote. Starlog's Birthday Fantasy is a 15-minute, 16-millimeter color film, it's available for screenings at conventions, schools, and libraries in the U.S., Canada, and England, or only organizers in the U.S. and Canada. Should contact, and it lists an address, of how to obtain this film to present it at your convention.
0: Okay, so it's a 15 minute film.
1: That all these conventions that we see listed that mention that, you get to watch a 15 minute film.
0: But they still don't say what it's about. It doesn't really
1: say, it just says it's Starlog's birthday fantasy.
0: So yeah, so they just want, they just want you to be interested in that title and go see it.
1: Yep, three conventions on this list have this Starlog Birthday Fantasy listed. Go figure. It's kind of so, neat, though, huh?
0: Yeah, so the cons must have contacted them about it. So, yeah, that's neat.
1: Atlanticon 1, which features sci fi, fantasy, Trek, film, comics, with Carrie Quinn and Starlog's Birthday Fantasy. This is in Virginia Beach, Virginia, April 15th through 17th. And
0: I like that, you know, that Starlog was popular enough, putting their name in it.
1: Everybody was. Re- we know. Phew, We've, how many times have we looked in the letters pages of Log and you'd seen celebrities commenting about their coverage in Starlog? They knew that Starlog was the number one resource for all the things that we love.
0: Yeah, the celebrities loved it and all the fans loved it. Legendary Events 1, which is sci-fi, fantasy, and occult. San Francisco, California, April 29th through May 1st, 1983.
1: Interesting combo.
0: Yeah, but I think... um. A lot of people would have been interested.
1: Totally. Future World Expo 83, which was a science convention in La Canada, California.
0: Science Fiction Expo.
1: And based on real world science. So, a lot of science fiction fans love real world science, too.
0: Yeah, that would be Makes neat. Makes
1: sense to advertise it in Starlog.
0: Yeah. Yukon 1, Science Fiction Con, Eugene, Oregon, May 13th through 15th, 1983.
1: So if you notice of this era, a lot of conventions were ba- the name was based on where they were. So it's UConn, not U C O N, but E U C O N, Eugene, Oregon, UConn. Right. That was the pattern in the eighties. You name your convention not on what it is, but where it's located.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you still see that sometimes, or or even if it or even if it's a different name, that'll it'll still have the city as part of the name.
1: And Millennium. Sci-Fi Multimedia Convention, with Carrie O'Quinn and Starlog's Birthday Fantasy in Toronto, Canada, June 10th through 12.
6: McDonald's brings you all the action and excitement of Hazard County with their new Dukes of Hazard Happy Meal boxes. There's a new car every week. And each comes with an authentic set of decals. You can collect all five cars and create your own Hazard County with the Dukes of Hazard Happy Meal. At McDonald's. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. The next chapter in the Star Wars saga. Revenge of the Jedi. The battle between good and evil rages on... Join the further adventures of Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia, Lando Calrissian, Chewbacca, C-3PO and R2-D2, and Darth Vader. A journey to alien worlds. It's a trap! rebellion against oppression an epic of heroes and villains an adventure as vast as the universe revenge of the jedi coming may 25th to a theater in your galaxy
1: starlog magazine issue number 68 cover date march 1983 Log Entries, latest News in the Worlds of Science Fiction and Fact A Jedi by Any Other Name
0: Return of the Jedi is the official title of the third Star Wars film. According to a Lucasfilm spokesman, the title of the movie has never been changed. We used a couple of working titles, one was Blue Harvest, and the other was Revenge of the Jedi, but the title always Was the title that's on the original script? It has always been Return of the Jedi.
1: Um, I'm going to challenge that. (laughs) I remember getting Star Wars toys that said, "Coming soon from Kenner: Revenge of the Jedi action figures." I mean, it was Revenge of the Jedi was definitely a thing.
0: It was, and they also had like they had posters made with Revenge of the Jedi. Well, they posters and patches. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Totally, totally. We know the story behind why it was changed. Multiple layers of the name changing.
0: Um, the Wrath of Khan what was originally going to be called The Vengeance of Khan. And, of course, those people admit that they, <laughs> that they changed the title. Paramount I- said,
1: yeah, we don't want to be competing with them. They don't want to be competing with us. They... Because there's something too close, revenge and vengeance.
0: And it was actually, and it was, and it's been printed in previous Star Logs. Um, mm-hmm. that they did, Star Log actually did say that, um, that, um, the Star Wars people asked the Star Trek people, could you change the name? Because we're using Revenge of the Jedi and we don't want people to get those movies mixed up.
1: Exactly. And then you have the inside story level that Jedis wouldn't seek revenge.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So, so the title change does make sense.
7: My name is Myers, Paul Myers, and like you, I'm a Bond fan. Back in 1982, I was watching the Academy Awards on TV. Cubby Broccoli was given the Thalberg Award for his work in film, specifically for the Bond films. They had a gala presentation. It was made by Roger Moore, and it was just amazing to watch on TV. And I thought, wow, how cool is that? Finally, some recognition for this series that so many of us have been fond of for years and still are fond of today. I thought, I'm going to write a congratulatory letter to Cubby Broccoli, which is what I did. Shortly after I sent that letter, I received a letter on Octopussy Letterhead from Charles Jerry Giroux, who was the marketing vice president for Eon Productions at the time. The letter thanked me for my kind words and contained an open invitation to visit the set of Octopussy should I happen to find myself in England during the filming. I can't describe the level of excitement upon reading this letter, and I called my wife at the time and told her about it. She immediately dampened my excitement by telling me it was just a form letter sent to anybody that corresponded with them. And I thought about what she said, and I thought, could it be, or was it a real deal? So I said, you know what, I'm going to call Pinewood Studios, and I'm going to find out. And she laughed, and she thought, well, go ahead, you'll find out. So I did. When I called Eon Productions at Pinewood Studios, I found out, yes, indeed, it was a true offer. They provided the dates of the filming of Octopussy at Pinewood Studios and said, if I decided to come on out, just give them a call after making our booking. I explained this to my wife at the time, and she laughed and said she wasn't interested in going. And I said, well, I'm going. You can join me or not. And she said, well, you're not going to England without me. I'll go shopping while you play James Bond. So she did our booking, and I contacted Eon Productions and confirmed the dates we'd be in the London area. They said, sure, just call us when you check in your hotel, and we'll figure something out. Sounded promising to me, so I was pretty jazzed and excited about this. My wife at the time, not so much. From that time, for the next few weeks until our trip, which was going to be the first time myself and my wife at the time would be crossing the pond, I was over the moon excited. She wasn't very interested. And this continued until we were actually on our flight and we arrived in the U.K., We checked into our hotel and I called Pinewood Studios and was given a date to arrive and general instructions how to get there. Remember, this is 1982. This is before Google Maps and GPS. I purchased a very large driving map of Greater London. Pinewood Studios is located approximately 17 miles northwest of London. So I had to figure out how to get there. Next, I had to hire a car. Worse yet, I had to drive on the wrong side of the road. That took a bit of getting used to. On the day that was selected, we made our way on the motorways to Pinewood Studios, where we checked in at a guard shack. We were instructed to park our car in the 007 lot and walk over to the main house where we would be greeted. The main house was, at the time, the front entrance of the mansion that became Pinewood Studios. Once inside the front door and while waiting, all of a sudden my wife at the time gave me an excited slap in the arm. That startled me pretty much, and I turned and said, What was that for? And she said, Look, it's Superman. And sure enough, Christopher Reeve was also in the waiting area in that room. So I suggested we go say hello, to which she said no thanks, but she kept staring. And it appeared now that she was okay with being at Pinewood Studios. A short time later, a lovely young lady came out to get us and gave us a tour of the facility, which culminated with us being brought out into Octopussy's Circus Tent. After a few minutes, another person came over to us and asked us if we'd like to be extras in the scene they were about to film. We eagerly agreed. We were instructed where we should sit as we were members of the audience in the circus. The scene that was filmed was where Francisco the Fearless was being shot out of a cannon. As we sat there watching, all the lead characters were seated across the arena from us, including, of course, 007 Sir Roger Moore. Though we were discouraged from taking photos during our tour, no one seemed to care that acting as tourists in the circus scene that we snapped a few photos during the circus scene, which of course I did. During a break, we approached Roger Moore and I asked him if I could take a photo of my wife at the time with him. He looked at me deadpan and said, no. But if you'd like to give your camera to that young lady over there who's a crew member, you can both get into the photo. And we did exactly that pretty excitedly. We stayed with the crew for the rest of the day and had lunch with them in the former Pinewood Cafeteria, which had a gift shop we quickly browsed. At the end of the day's filming, we drove back to London. In the morning of the next day, it dawned on me we never purchased any souvenirs from the Pinewood gift shop. So as I hadn't returned the rental car yet, I called out to Pinewood Studios to ask if we could just visit the shop again. We were told, sure, come on out. So we headed out to Pinewood again, purchased a few mementos, and we left. We spent a few days in London, went to Calais by ferry, had a wonderful time. Yes, even my wife at the time enjoyed herself. I stayed in contact with Eon Productions ever since. Two years later, we went back to Pinewood while they were filming A View to a Kill. A few years after that, after I had relocated to Key West, Florida, working for the local government... I was contacted by a representative of MGM regarding helping them with a project they'd be filming in Key West called License Revoked. But that's a story for another day.
2: Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. This is Matthew Kressel again here on the podcast, but here to talk about the other film from 1983's Battle of the Bonds. Yes, Sean Connery's Never Say Never Again a film with a legacy that extends both well before and, indeed, well after the film was made, and whose repercussions can still be felt on the James Bond film franchise to this day, in part because of its origins. In the 1950s, not long after Ian Fleming had first created James Bond, Fleming began to realize that there was both money and also potential, in bringing James Bond to the silver screen and began as soon as, almost as soon as Casino Royale was published in 1953 to seek out filmic opportunities for Bond, something that led to his selling the rights to that first Bond novel and leading to its 1954 live TV adaptation and later the 1967 spoof film. But that's a whole nother story. But... Throughout the 1950s, though, Fleming would spend quite a bit of time working on Bond projects, including a proposed adaptation of Moonraker for the UK's Rank Organization, for which Fleming himself actually wrote a screenplay. It's only recently been uncovered. But by the end of the 50s, it was clear Bond just hadn't caught on with filmmakers yet. At least until Fleming was introduced by a friend to an Irish film producer named Kevin McClory. Now, McClory was an up-and-comer in the film industry at the time and had just produced a film that was getting some notice called The Boy on the Bridge. And it was McClory meeting with Fleming who said, hey, instead of making a film based off one of the books, what if we created a whole new James Bond movie from scratch? Just use the character. Over the months that followed, Fleming, McClory, and a screenwriter named Jack Whittingham would come up with a script that they would call, alternatively, Latitude 78 or Thunderball. And if that title sounds familiar, you probably know where this is going next. As time went on, The Boy on the Bridge didn't quite manage to become a box office hit, and thus McClury wasn't able to develop the financing needed to get the film project off the ground. So Fleming went off and had to go write another Bond novel. Now, keep in mind that Fleming had already been through several attempts to get Bond to the screen, including TV projects with CBS that he had adapted into the short story anthology For Your Eyes Only and also the novel Dr. No. So Fleming was used to taking unused TV and screen ideas and reusing them as novels. And thus, when it came time to write a novel during the winter months of 1960 for publication in 1961, Fleming probably didn't think twice about adapting the Thunderball screenplay. He probably thought about it afterwards, though, when, as soon as the novel came out, Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham hit him with lawsuits alleging plagiarism. There's a complicated court case involved here, certainly one more complicated than I have time to go into here, and if you are interested in learning more of that story, and indeed about more of what I'm going to talk about later, Robert Sellers' excellent book, The Battle for Bond, is a must-read. But suffice to say this, that in 1964, Kevin McClory won his lawsuit and ended up with the rights, the film rights, that is, to Thunderball. And this is an interesting moment in James Bond's history, because goldfinger was about to come out and when goldfinger arrived on cinema screens worldwide james bond became a legitimate phenomenon and for a time in late 1964 early 1965 there was not one but two different james bond projects being pursued With Eon, the people who made the Bond films as we've known them, starting with Dr. No, and McClory working on separate projects. Indeed, McClory even went to Toronto, Canada, where Richard Burton, right in the middle of the height of his relationship with Elizabeth Taylor, and doing tryouts for what will become his legendary Hamlet on Broadway, and actually reached a deal with Burton to sign him to play James Bond in a Thunderball movie. But... Something happens around this point. What isn't quite clear, even from Robert Sellers' research? And instead, a deal is struck. One that will make waves through the history of the James Bond film franchise. The deal is struck between Eon, Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Zaltzman, and Kevin McClory to make Thunderball, the James Bond film that will come out in time for Christmas 1965. And as part of that deal, an agreement was made that ten years on from the film's release... Kevin McClory could have the rights to remake Thunderball, and his own James Bond film in other words, separately from the Eon production team. Exactly what Eon was thinking when they made this deal, no one's quite sure of, and much like Fleming going off and using the script to write a novel, it's something that in hindsight, everybody probably regretted, except for Kevin McClory. But Thunderball gets made across 1965. It's a huge hit. The biggest Bond film of the 1960s, and until Skyfall came around, the most successful Bond film at the box office adjusted for inflation, making well over a billion dollars in today's money. But the Bond films keep being made, up and downs, degrees of success as Sean Connery becomes George Lazenby, becoming Sean Connery again, becoming Roger Moore. But in 1976, at the end of that 10 year deal, Kevin McClory announces he's going to remake Thunderball, all right. Exactly what he would have done isn't 100% clear. There's various drafts of the script which are floating around on the internet under the title of James Bond at the Secret Service and Warhead, but it's clear that this would have been a big action epic and may or may not have had Sean Connery returning to the role, though at one point Connery, along with the acclaimed thriller writer Len Dayton, were working on script drafts to update it. But around this time, Eon's preparing their big comeback of their own with Roger Moore with The Spy Who Loved Me. And both films, dealing with underwater settings, ended up coming to a lawsuit in the London High Court once again, more than a decade on from the original Thunderball lawsuit. At the end of that, it was clear that people owned different things, and for one thing, Eon couldn't use Spectre or Blofeld, and Kevin McClory was very limited on what he could do with his Thunderball script. And that put some heavy brakes on McClory's plans to make another Bond film. At least until a few years later in the 1980s, when very early on in that decade, another producer, Jack Schwartzman, decided he would take McClory's challenge up. The result would be Never Say Never Again, released in the fall of 1983. Though, if things had gone according to plan, the film would have come out much earlier and may even have been at the box office dueling head-on with Roger Moore in Octopussy, but it really wasn't meant to be that way. And as it turns out, both films were quite successful. It's true Octopussy made more money at the global box office than Never Say Never Again did, but at least at the time, critical opinion of Never Say Never Again was much higher than it was about Octopussy, something no doubt helped by Sean Connery returning to the role the first time in 12 years since he departed eons films with Diamonds Are Forever. But now, 40 years on from when those films were made, how does Never Say Never Again hold up? Well, certainly for me, looking at the films, I would argue that Never Say Never Again was really the winner of the Battle of the Bonds. I mean, look at the cast, for example. Never Say Never Again boasts one of the best casts ever assembled for a Bond film. And it all starts with Connery. Now, true, Connery might be older than he was back in 71, but he certainly looks better than he did. Gone is the bored Bond of Diamonds Are Forever or You Only Live Twice made a few years before that, then what we have here is an older version of the Bond of those early Connery films. This Bond is the sleek and dangerous shark of Dr. Nowhere from Russia with Love, just a few years older. And Connery's delivery of one-liners and dialogue is as dead-on as it ever was. Now, the one downside to Connery's age is his believability, especially when it comes to the ladies of the film. And let's face it, regardless of being in top physical shape, Connery looks as odd as Roger Moore when he is betting women half his age. Yet, despite that particular issue, Never Say Never Again shows Connery on one of his better Bond performances, and it's a definite improvement over his two previous Eon Bond outings. Also in one of her early film roles is Kim Basinger playing Domino with considerable confidence for a newcomer and she makes that particular character believable. True, she's not Claudine Aujour in Thunderball playing that same part, but she does a very good job with it. But really, I think the star of this film, besides Connery, is Klaus-Marie Brandauer playing Maximilian Largo. A billionaire playboy with an evil streak in him that remains well hidden, Brandauer's Largo is everything a James Bond villain should be. Suave, charming, evil, and above all, believable. Brandauer makes the role realistic and chooses not to fall into the trap many other Bond villains have fallen into by going over the top. Instead, he plays Largo with a silent menace and charisma unseen in many other Bond adversaries and the excellent ensemble extends into the supporting cast as well. Barbara Criera makes a fine henchwoman in the guise of Fatima Blush, and the screen lights up whenever she appears. Max von Sydow makes a wonderful Blofeld, even though he is well underused here. Apparently many of his scenes ended up on the cutting room floor. And there's also an early screen appearance by Rowan Atkinson as Bond's bumbling contact in the Bahamas, which makes for some wonderful light relief about midway through the film. And because this was a non-Eon Bond film, they could do different things with the sort of central MI6 cast, such as Edward Fox, who makes a wonderful contrast to the Bernard Lee M that we saw Connery play with. Also somebody younger, but also less sure of Bond's capabilities. There's also Pamela Salem as a fine Miss Moneypenny. Doctor Who fans will know her from her roles in The Robots of Death and Remembrance of the Daleks. And there's a wonderful Q in the form of Alex McCowan. On top of an excellent cast, Never Say Never Again has several other essential ingredients for a Bond film. Action sequences, special effects, and directions. From the opening Central America sequence to the fight at Troublins to the underwater scenes of Motorbike Chase, this is a film where the action sequences are not only solid, but for the most part, serve the plot as well. It also sports good special effects in terms of its cruise missile models, explosions, and all those things we expect from a Bond film. Irvin Kirshner, then fresh off directing The Empire Strikes Back for the Star Wars films, brings a tightness to the film, especially in sequences like the substitution of nuclear warheads and the subsequent theft of them from cruise missiles in mid-air. Yet this film is far from perfect. Never Say Never Again is easily one of the most dated of all the Bond films, thanks to its heavy reliance on 1980s computers and video games. And the script itself also suffers from the fact that it's a remake of Thunderball. Yet for all of its predictability, the script is pretty solid. There are some good dialogue scenes, there's some wonderful one-liners, and some humorous situations, yet it's both watchable and tense for the most part. And once you look past the fact that Never Say Never Again is a remake, there are quite a lot of good things in the script that add to the film and also separate it from Thunderball's 1965 adaptation. By far, though, the film's biggest weakness is its music. Due to its status being made outside of the Eon series, the James Bond theme, that iconic piece of music simply couldn't be used for legal reasons. Now, that said, this could have been a perfect opportunity with the right composer to show what a Bond score without that iconic theme could be. Unfortunately, first choice James Horner, fresh off Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan at the time, was passed over in favor of Michelle Legrand. Now, his score... I've come to warm up to it in more recent times, it's a wonderful sort of jazzy piece to listen to on its own, but as a James Bond score, it doesn't quite work. Yet, despite this film being dated and those issues with the score, Never Say Never Again is still a fun Bond film, and it's got one of the best casts you're going to find in a Bond film with some terrific dialogue, some good action sequences, and some solid special effects and direction. Never Say Never Again proved that being an unofficial Bond film wasn't a bad thing, in fact, it certainly did well at the time, both at the box office, though it didn't score make quite as much money as Octopussy, and certainly was a bigger hit with the critics at the time. Though you would have been forgiven for thinking that Kevin McClory, having made one Thunderball remake, might have actually satiated his taste for more Bond films. You would be wrong. The following year, he announced a follow-up film called Spectre. Unmade and later in the nineteen eighties announced a James Bond vs Spectre animated series again unmade but helped create the James Bond jr animated series as a response After Pierce Brosnan's Bond helped rejuvenate the series in the 1990s, McClory took one more shot at it with Columbia Pictures, and even bringing on director Roland Emmerich, fresh off Independence Day and Godzilla, to potentially direct yet another Thunderball film, potentially with Liam Neeson or Timothy Dalton in the role of Bond. But legal action finally caught up with McClory, and in 2001, he officially lost his chance to do his own rival Bond film series. McClory would pass away a few years later, and it wouldn't be until 2013, shortly after the release of Skyfall, that Eon would finally bring Thunderball back in-house, thus leading to the later Daniel Craig films, Spectre, and the return of Spectre and Blofeld in 2021's No Time to Die. The influences of Thunderball and that lawsuit more than six decades ago are still being felt. Never Say Never Again is just a small part of that legacy, though, and It's an interesting part of it, too. It's one of only two Bond films made outside of Eon's purview. And as such, it stands in some ways as a curiosity. But more than that, it's a chance to see Sean Connery back in the role that made him an icon a dozen years after he'd left that part for good or so he said. Connery would, of course, return to the role of Bond one last time after Never Say Never Again in 2005 for the From Russia With Love video game adaptation. But Never Say Never Again stands as his final Bond performance on film, helping launch the second wind of his career leading to his Oscar-winning role in The Untouchables later in that decade, as well as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where he played Indiana Jones' father, and his 1990s action roles, including his pseudo-Bond part in 1995's The Rock for Michael Bay. So, not a bad legacy to leave behind.
1: As always, we're going to complete this episode of Star Podlog by talking about one of the advertisements that's found in the magazine, all right, here's another crazy ad in the classifieds. This is pretty funny. Extraterrestrial insurance pays $500,000 if extraterrestrial life lands on Earth. Five-year coverage, then $5 to an address in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Five bucks. So in today's money, it would probably be about $12, $15. How many hundreds of $5 bills do you think that this address is? in Colorado got for <laughs> insurance coverage on just in case extraterrestrials land on your property.
0: I don't know. I don't know if people would have fallen for that. Do you think there's, it, a,
1: there weren't a lot of suckers?
0: Maybe, you know, maybe kids. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's so crazy, isn't it?
0: Yeah, but I guess it was that era, though, where it was, you know, because of the UFO things, I mean, and sci-fi being oh, so popular.
1: it was a big deal, right? You had Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of that they had just finished airing the year before. Of course, that was always on people's minds of the, the possibility of UFOs. This is the era of E.T. and Close Encounters. Great place to advertise something like that in Starlog magazine.
0: Yeah, and, and, and it shows that Starlog would print anything. <laughs> These ads.
6: <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long, and may the force be with you.
6: Nanu Nanu.